From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Supreme Court has essentially said if you want to stop gerrymandering, figure it out for yourselves. Well, Colorado did just that. And CPR's Sam Brash, host of the political podcast Purplish, will explain. Then, climate change solutions. In Aspen, they've just awarded big bucks to projects that reduce carbon. Like changing how people get around in India from something that's gas-powered. And they are doing electric tuk-tuks, rickshaws. Later, not your typical father-daughter activity, scaling a 3,000-foot granite cliff together. She's 10, by the way. Our big motto all throughout the climb was, how do you eat an elephant? Small bites. <laughs> Plus, a teen umpire steps up to the big leagues. Have you ever thrown anyone out of a game? No, but I probably should have that last time. <laughs> this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Partisan gerrymandering can no longer be challenged in federal courts. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court decided in a landmark 5-4 to four ruling last week. But in his opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote individual states can still police the practice, and he pointed to Colorado as an example. CPR's Sam Brash joins us to talk about what's happening here exactly and what uh, other states might draw from Colorado. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. Just briefly, what are we talking about when we say gerrymandering? So gerrymandering is drawing political districts to benefit a certain group, right? So partisan gerrymandering, that's usually benefiting a political party. Racial gerrymandering would be benefiting a racial group. Um, Republicans and Democrats, in the case of partisan gerrymandering, define the districts and in doing so, give themselves a structural advantage on Election Day. Okay, that's the backdrop. Last Mm -hmm. year, Colorado voted overwhelmingly passed a pair of constitutional amendments to restrict gerrymandering in Colorado. These got like 70 Mm percent support. Remind us what those were, what they do. Right. Two amendments, uh, Amendment Y and Amendment Z. Now they're in the state constitution. One dealt with how the state draws legislative districts and one dealt with how the state draws congressional districts. But they basically do the same thing. They set up these 12 person citizen commissions made up of four people from the largest political party in the state, four people from the second largest political party in the state. So in that case, obviously, at Democratic Party, Republican Party, and then four unaffiliated uh, commissioners as well to kind of provide that balance. Those groups will decide the districts. And of course, there are many unaffiliated voters in Colorado. So that reflects the political complexion here. And instead then of having politicians or political appointees draw the maps, as often happens in other states, it just won't work that way in Colorado, Sam. Exactly. In a lot of other states, uh, people criticize the system because often politicians are choosing voters and not the other way around. Now there's an independent commission here in Colorado, which is a big deal. Um, And Colorado is expected to get an eighth congressional district in 2022. So if politicians ran this process, I mean, that would be a huge opportunity to skew the maps in in their favor because we're basically tossing the old map out. Um, these amendments are, are meant to make that just much, much harder. You put it so brilliantly there. Not voters choosing politicians, politicians choosing voters if you don't work against gerrymandering. Does the U.S. Supreme Court decision have any effect on these rules or do they just stay in place in Colorado? These, these completely stay in place. Okay. Y and Z, nothing happens, right? Um, but they halt legal action in other states to toss out heavily gerrymandered maps in places like Maryland. 
Maryland and North Carolina. Amanda Gonzalez directs Colorado Common Cause. It's a good government group which supported Colorado's redistricting reform efforts in the last election. And she told me right after the ruling that the decision should be a wake-up call for state-level political action. I think it's highly disappointing. I know that I was heartbroken yesterday that this is the wrong decision for our democracy. That doesn't mean that people don't still have power to change it. Not through the federal courts anymore, but as you say, at the state level. So what are the options for opponents of gerrymandering at the state level? Um, There are really three options. So one is that you could probably still challenge a lot of maps in state court. That recently proved successful in Pennsylvania. They had to redraw their congressional districts, uh, which is a really big deal. Um, And that all happened at the state level. That wasn't in federal court. So you could do that possibly. Um, They could simply vote out their state lawmakers, right, and elect politicians that are willing to enact some sort of reform on their own. Uh, Or they could take up citizen initiatives and use those uh, to force the you know, politicians or other groups to set up independent redistricting commissions. Okay. And in Colorado, there was a bit of a combination approach. In other words, the legislature referred the amendments we talked about to the ballot and voters passed them. Yeah. And I think that really had a lot to do with the unique circumstances that were going on here in Colorado. I mean, for one, we already had pretty good restrictions on gerrymandering in the law in the first place, even though lawmakers often made their decision. Um, made the decision about the districts, but they were afraid about, you know, what would happen in 2022 with this new congressional district. So there was sort of this impetus to, to, you know, hand it over to an independent commission. So politicians and voters sort of combined to make that happen. And of course, the additional congressional district is a function of population in Colorado's growth. That's not going to be true of all states. How many other states have these sort of independent redistricting commissions already? So about 18 states have some process to combat gerrymandering. But they they work in all kinds of different ways. Um, Most are independent redistricting commissions. But for instance, Missouri has a nonpartisan state demographer draw the maps. Iowa gives the jobs to bureaucrats and then lets lawmakers sign off. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on and they all work in different ways. Many state level politicians, including Governor Jared Polis, have said that Colorado offers a model for other states to tackle gerrymandering after this decision. Is anything really special about what voters passed here in 2018, Sam? Yeah, I mean, what Colorado voters decided on stands out in a few ways that research backs up as being a pretty good way to uh, hold back gerrymandering. It gives an equal voice to unaffiliated voters, right? Um, And it also has an insanely rigorous selection process for who the commissioners are. You have to apply and then go through all these screening checks to make sure that you're not actually... Um, trying to help a certain political party or connected to politics in any real way. Um, and the maps also need to be approved by a supermajority on the commission, which researchers, researchers say that makes uh, partisan gerrymandering even harder because uh, a group of people from a range of political affiliations need to agree that these are fair maps. Um, yeah, research says that's going to be a pretty good guard against partisan gerrymandering, but we're going to have to wait and see. Okay. A little little bit of a crystal ball question. Yeah. Do, do you think other states will be able to enact something like Colorado has? I mean, I put that to Rob Whitworth. He's a former Republican lawmaker. Now he's an independent. And he helped uh, big time with the effort behind Y&Z. And he says the big problem is that, you know, not every state can put gerrymandering on the ballot. 
I think any state that has an initiative process could certainly go directly to the ballot with a proposal like this one, and I hope they do. In other states where they don't have an initiative process, they're going to need to put political pressure on their elected officials in the state legislatures to do the right thing. You know, the issue there is, you know, in many cases, those very state lawmakers are the people benefiting from gerrymandering laws. Yeah, and if you don't have the citizen process, it's a very different question mm-hmm. in, in such a state. Uh, that means voters might be stuck, I guess? Yeah, I mean, if you live in, say, North Carolina, Maryland, Wisconsin, these states with very heavily gerrymandered maps, I mean, you have to live with this at least through 2020. Um, but Colorado could be an example of a way out. To get there, though, basics, you know, to get there, voters are going to have to overcome a a rig system. um, And now they can't turn to the federal courts for help. Sam Brash, one of the reasons we turn to you for this is that you are the host of the political podcast Purplish. Mm -hmm. And you did an episode called Jerry Man Don't. Yes. uh, Which was all about Y and Z. What's the most fascinating thing you learned in researching the history of this tension in Colorado? I mean, I think the most interesting thing that we learned about that is just how how the groups involved had to learn to trust each other, right? Oh. Like the one thing we kept hearing over and over and over again is redistricting is an inherently political process. It uh, It is really, really hard not to imagine that when the rules are set in place that political operatives won't go to their corners and try and figure out how to game it. And so what happened was that all these different people didn't trust each other, but they were willing to come together and create a system that they all agreed they thought would be the hardest to crack into. (laughs) Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So I I mean, who knows? Like I, we played a lot of games on that podcast trying to figure out if there was some secret loophole that could let some party operative in. Um, But yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty good system and we're going to have to see how it plays out. Yeah. It was fun to hear you essentially try to hack the system. Yeah. And, and so you can listen to that episode of Purplish, Jerry Man Don't, wherever you get your podcasts. Sam Brash, thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm. So thank learning you. the origin of the word gerrymander was one of my favorite moments in school. The term dates back to the early 1800s. The governor of Massachusetts, Elbridge Gerry, reluctantly approved new political boundaries, including a peculiar looking state senate district. An artist at the time at the Boston Gazette turned it into a fantastical creature that resembled a salamander. They dubbed it the Gary-mander. The town of Marblehead formed its claws, Salisbury its serpentine head. The hard G eventually was softened and became gerrymander. Governor Gary went on to become vice president under James Madison, but died after less than two years in office. So often, climate change coverage is focused on the problem, not solutions. But we are going to inject a bunch of hope now by talking about the winners of a global warming solutions contest. It comes out of Aspen. It's called the Keeling Curve Prize. Ten winners around the world were just announced. And Jacqueline Francis started this prize. She's with us from Aspen. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Why don't we start with rickshaws, shall we? Absolutely. It's actually not rickshaws. It's the three-wheeled vehicles that they use. Well, I guess they would be three-wheeled rickshaws, but these are tuk-tuks that are gas-powered in India. And so one of our winners, their name is Three Wheels United, and they are doing electric 
Tuk Tuk's, rickshaws. The idea being that the electrical grid is a bit cleaner than if they are gas-powered? Yes, and Three Wheels United is trying to help people in India finance these options for a cleaner way to drive around in the very, very polluted cities in India. These would be plug-ins or would they be solar or something like that? You know, I think they um, would love them to run off solar, but they would plug into an electric grid that hopefully in India is turning more towards renewable energy. It strikes me that any decision that India makes can have a huge impact. You've got 1.3 billion people living there. You know that half of the world's population is in Asia. Mm. So they make a decision. So anyone in, in those parts of the world that are making these decisions, it really matters. It's a huge number of people. Okay, if the name of this prize is puzzling, let me say that the Keeling Curve is a measure of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, since observations began in 1958, that curve looks like a plane taking off too steeply. I understand that a key consideration for this prize is the immediacy of the solution. And your team of scientists, judges, considers not just the idea, but how viable it is if it's ready for investment. Talk to us just about that a bit. The idea is is simply to activate and accelerate climate solutions everywhere. And we all who are involved with the Keeling Curve Prize and sort of in my orbit really believe that this is kind of a race against time. A race against time. L- let's talk about maybe some of the past recipients, the difference they've been able to make. I understand one of them involves biofuels in Kenya. Yes. We had somebody last year, Chemolux, that was using invasive hyacinth in lakes and rivers to create biofuels for their local community. And they were picking the hyacinth with individuals, with people. And with the prize money, they were able to buy machinery, and they've increased their production of biofuels 6,000%. So hyacinth was growing everywhere. It was getting out of control. And the idea was to turn it into a fuel. But doesn't that mean that you're releasing all the carbon from the hyacinth? Well, it's released anyway in the atmosphere. When the hyacinth dies, it releases that carbon anyway. That's the natural process of a carbon cycle. So it's not adding to the balance. And as many people might know, uh, CO2 is a balance in our system. So when we're burning fossil fuels, we're actually taking it out of the depths of our earth and putting it up into the atmosphere. But when you take it from plant matter it's already a part of the natural carbon system. So the idea there is that the hyacinth, which would uh, eventually emit carbon in its life, uh, was doing so to replace fossil fuels. Yes. You know, in cooking and in um, driving and so forth. So producing a biofuel can substitute that for any kind of fossil fuel use. There's something so cool about the idea of running a car on hyacinth. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of this year's recipients of the Keeling Curve Prize isn't so much an invention as it is a massive group raising awareness. Tell me about what the World Council of Churches is doing and why you believe this is so critical. So according to their application, the World Council of Churches has over half a billion members, congregations that include all types of religious denominations. Their philosophy is that they would use the prize money to educate young people as well as their parents in sort of a Sunday school kind of program. And the number of people and the reach that this could create is quite impressive. And that's kind of the whole idea behind getting more people involved in changing their behaviors. That's what a movement is about. 
does this prize confirm conservatives' beliefs that government either isn't the answer or isn't the biggest answer to addressing climate change? You know, I I wouldn't say that it does, because I think that we definitely have given some awareness to like government policies and stuff. So I think the government is a piece of solutions. But I don't think that it focuses uh, entirely on that. And I think that there are so many places that solutions need to come from. I think government will eventually like really understand the importance of this and get on board as well, which is also important. How important is hope in addressing the climate crisis? Well, the TED Talk by Greta Thunberg, um, she talks about how hope is great and hope is important. But if we don't have actions and if we don't have implementation of these actions, then hope's not going to get us there. So I, I feel like hope is something that we already should have gotten past and we like have the hope, but we should be looking at how to implement the actions that are viable. And the solutions that are happening everywhere need to be scaled up. But in and of itself, that's hopeful, isn't it? Yes, it is. Let's jump into that TED Talk for just a second by the young climate activist. I sat myself down on the ground outside the Swedish parliament. I school striked for the climate. Some people say that I should be in school instead. Some people say that I should study to become a climate scientist so that I can solve the climate crisis. But the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. All we have to do is to wake up and change. Well, Jackie, we'll leave it there. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Jackie Francis is the founder and director of the Keeling Curve Prize based in Aspen to fight climate change. You can see the list of winners at CPR.org later today. Denver's historic neighborhoods, like Capitol Hill and Washington Park, are full of red brick homes. And it prompted a question through Colorado Wonders asking, why brick? Why not something else? CPR's Nathaniel Miner set out to find the answer. Colleen Feely's house in South Denver stands out. Hi, Colleen. Hi, Nathaniel. Most houses on this block are made of brick, but hers has wood clapboard siding. And that got her wondering... Why did Denver build so many brick homes? She thought that maybe the city changed its codes to require bricks at some point. And she's curious because her own house has an unusual story. Her realtor told her it was moved here from central Denver back in the 1920s. Having known it was moved here, I was curious about when my home could have been built, which had to be before the zoning code changed to brick. And I'd love to find out where the house originally stood. I told Colleen I'd do my best to find out. My research took me to Denver's lower downtown, which is full of old brick warehouses. My name is Allison Salutes. I'm the director of community programs at Historic Denver. Uh, And today we're talking a bit about why Denver is such a brick city. So let's just start with that question. Why did Denver just build out of brick? Yes. Well, when Denver was first started, it, it wasn't built out of brick. It was built out of wood. A lot of folks were living in tents, maybe like half wood, half tent structure. And when are we talking here? 
Uh, we're talking like 1858 through about 1863. Uh-huh. And on, then what happened? On April 19th, 1863, there was a really big fire that broke out. It broke out at about 1 a.m. and it moved very quickly through the town. Um, so it would have taken out almost all of those wood structures. That included homes and also large warehouses that stored some really flammable things. So one of the big buildings that caught on fire was a storehouse that included storing flour and also a large um, amount of bacon, oh. which also burned quite quickly. So imagine the next morning has this kind of weird smell of, of burning bacon yeah, in the air like throughout breakfast. the city. Yeah. By the end of that day, most of Denver was gone. But there were some buildings still standing at what is now Larimer Square, and they were made of brick. So city leaders decided, okay, we can't let this happen again. And they mandated that new buildings had to be built out of fireproof materials. Even though it is a little bit more expensive for people to build out of stone and brick, um, we're lucky in Denver because we have really wonderful clay reserves. So it's not that difficult to make brick. And so they started rebuilding the city um, out of those materials. There were a few ways to get around the ordinance, but brick was king until the city adopted new buildings codes around 1960. Historians aren't really sure why that happened. But the ordinance's effects are still clear. As of a few years ago, nearly half of Denver's homes were made of brick, and many of them are still around today, and they need a special touch to keep them whole. Gary Holt has been a bricklayer in Denver for decades. His company specializes in turn-of-the-century buildings, Earlier this year, he was called in for an emergency repair on a brick apartment building near City Park. The residents reported a loud bang. They thought a bomb had gone off in the middle of the night. They got up and the brick was on the ground. It had just failed. A chunk of bricks three feet wide had just fallen out. And Holt says that's generally how it goes. Brick is so low maintenance, most owners don't really pay attention to it until a chunk of the wall falls off. To fix it, Holt finds brick from the same era. He even thinks about the people that laid them in the first place. And when you're fixing stuff like this, you have to kind of get into their head. How would they fix this? How is this done, you know? Holt says he's glad to be helping preserve Denver's brick legacy, and he hopes Denver's residents won't take it for granted. So what about Colleen's other questions? Where did her wooden house come from? And when was it actually built? Unfortunately, there really isn't much of a paper trail to check. This might just have to be a mystery you're, you're going to have to live with. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, I love the house and the location is perfect, so I think I'm pretty happy here. Yeah. And at least she doesn't have to wonder about the brick homes around her anymore. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. All right, what do you wonder about in Colorado? Send us your questions, cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a 10-year-old girl who definitely has bragging rights about what she did this summer. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Join me, Anne-Marie Awad, to sift through life after marijuana legalization with a new Colorado Public Radio podcast called On Something. 
America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. On our very first episode, you get the long story short on how weed became legal and illegal and all points in between. Pot was going to destroy the country. Ten years later, it's compassionate to let people use it. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. About an hour before Sunday's game between the Colorado Rockies and the L.A. Dodgers, two people sat down together in the home team's dugout at Coors Field. They were brought together by a shared bond and a love of the game. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton was there. Good? Yeah, you? <laughs> hey, my heart's going a little bit too, so don't worry, all right? Chris Guccione is a major league umpire. He's joined by Josh Cordova, a 13-year-old from Denver who last month found himself in the middle of a story heard all around the world. A fight breaks out at a Little League game, not because of the kids, but because of the parents. Yeah, you have to see this video just released by Lakewood Police. You'll see a group of adults brawling in the middle of a Lakewood baseball field where seven-year-olds were playing. Josh was the umpire in that game, played at an elementary school in Lakewood, Colorado. He had issued a warning to a fan for using profanity. Eventually, the team's coaches got involved, and soon a large group of adults came down from the stands, fighting out on the field. It was just scary, not only for me, but for the seven-year-olds there. I don't want them to have the idea, like, baseball's like that. I wanted to have, like, an idea of, like, baseball being a, a great game and then learn to love the game, just as I have. Josh's parents, Josh and Jennifer, had been watching another one of their kids playing a baseball game of his own. They were on their way to pick up Josh when the phone rang. Jennifer Cordova said, He called us and said, you know, Mom, Dad, hurry up and get down here. Everybody's fighting. I can't stop them. I mean, I, I was thinking maybe there was an a fight, like an argument. I wasn't thinking it was a full-on brawl, and not to that extent. So we were rushing down there, but I, until I got there and I seen the chaos on the field, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. In the aftermath of the melee, 12 people would be cited for disorderly conduct. However, Guccione's concern was the kid in blue, the shirt color often worn by umpires when they officiate games. I started umpiring at the same age Joshua did, and, you know, my heart's here in Colorado. This is where I'm from. This is where I was raised. I grew up in a small town, Salida, Colorado, playing baseball and umping on the side, you know, just like Josh is doing. And when I saw the story, I was, I was shocked and I was saddened, and I wanted to reach out. And so it was that the two found themselves together on Sunday. Guccione and his profession's charity, Umps Cares, invited the Cordovas to the game. After arriving at the ballpark, Josh took a tour of the umpire's quarters, meeting the crew. They gave him a swag bag full of goodies, including official shirts and a new chest protector. After the national anthem was played, Josh strode onto the field, where he received instructions from home plate umpire Corey Blazer, himself another native of Colorado. He then met the two managers, Dave Roberts of Los Angeles and the Rockies' Bud Black. Black said he also umpired as a kid growing up in Washington State, but he realizes that times have changed. Parents self-admitted, say, hey, it's rough. It's rough. I hope this can get better. I mean, it's pretty simple. Get better, right? Yeah. 
Seven-year-old, wasn't that like a seven-year-old game? Yeah. And a 13-year-old umpire? And 40-year-old parents? I don't get it. On Sunday, Josh was asked about his experience with his fellow umpires. We just hung out, you know, I asked him a couple questions. Just like how many people he's thrown out, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Have you ever thrown anyone out of a game? No, but I probably should have that last time. <laughs> Josh said that some of the parents who were at the game have reached out to apologize for what happened that night. He added that someday he hopes to become a professional umpire like Guccione. I'm Anthony Cotton, CPR News. Sayla Schneider's parents met and fell in love on a climbing trip to El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. The 10-year-old from Glenwood Springs, Colorado, grew up hearing stories about that trip, and she recently made the climb herself with her dad, Mike Schneider, and a family friend, Mark Regier. Sela is now the youngest known person to scale El Capitan's 3,000-foot vertical cliff face. She and her father spoke with my colleague, Avery Lill. How has this experience affected your father-daughter relationship? It was a pretty special time to spend together. I mean, it was one of the best weeks of my life, I think, having this time uh, with Sayla climbing. and Yeah, I think it brought us really close together. Yeah. And whose idea was it to climb El Capitan? It's something that Sayla has talked about for a long time because El Cap is such an important part of our family story. I mean, that's where my wife and I fell in love, and so it's a place we've traveled to, and so... I think it's something that Sailor really got interested in because she'd seen the pictures and heard the stories. And so it was a real special time, kind of coming full circle in a way in life. And, um, well, I think before my dad had kind of talked about it. I And I was just kind of thinking, maybe I could do it. Maybe someday. You know, I never actually, um, it wasn't until about a year ago that I thought that I would actually do it like this year. And tell me about those conversations. How did it go from just an idea of something that you'd do someday to something that you're really actively training to do? Yeah, it, I don't know. It's hard to answer because it's something we had talked about for a long time. But it's one of those things where it's such a big goal and such a big dream. You just don't know when it's actually going to happen. Of course, inside of me, it was a desire, but I thought it would take many, many more years. Um, but Sailor really was adamant about you know, she wanted to try it. And so we kind of set a series of goals of, of steps that she had to go through to see if she was ready to tackle something as big as El Cap. And she kept meeting all those goals and working really hard and training really hard. And so that's why finally I was like, okay, I think we're going to give it a go. And I, I don't know that we even knew for sure if we were going to give it a go until this last month, um, just because we really wanted to make sure that she was ready physically and mentally and having all the technical skills that she would need. And even going into Yosemite, we pulled in and she kind of had this big wide-eyed look looking at El Cap. And I thought, well, I don't know, maybe this is too big. Maybe she's not going to want to go up there. But she was just gung-ho. It's like, let's go, let's go up there. And uh, but even along the way, I just wasn't sure those first couple of days whether we'd actually make it or if we'd just go down. Sayla, tell me about those goals. How did you prepare for this? Um, so I think a lot of it is mental, just thinking about, you know, do I actually want to do this? Am I actually ready for this? Um, things like that. Um, physically, I needed to really work on my strengths. I also needed to work on a lot of the technical skills. And, and where did you train for that? Do you want to tell her where you trained for that? Um, 
I trained for that a lot in my garage. Um, so we would um, just set up ropes in our garage and I could practice um, some of the skills. Then we would also go out to like Rifle, um, Uniweep Canyon, um, a bunch of places, climbing destinations out on the western slope of Colorado. Let's talk about the beginning of the climb. Sela, you led the first segment or the first pitch. What was that like? I think it was just really crazy. Just the thought of, wow, am I actually here? Um, yeah, it was really crazy, just the thought that I was there. You know, I'm in Yosemite. I'm at the base of El Cap. And you guys are in it for the long haul. You made it to the top in five days. Walk me through what those days were like. Basically... You know, every day you wake up in the morning, uh, eat some breakfast, go to the bathroom, pack up your camp, get ready to climb for the next day. And and so then basically once you start climbing, you, you just start climbing uh, all day. Uh, we did take some long lunch breaks because we had the party in front of us, so we, we didn't have to really rush. I'd say snack breaks. We never Snack breaks. I guess we're not having like a full deli lunch up there, are we? But we we are eating some good snacks and drinking water and relaxing on ledges while we're up there. Uh, but I mean, that's basically what you're doing. You know, you're probably climbing for eight to 12 hours a day and then trying to get to where you want to camp but before dark. And by camp, you know, like El Cap is pretty steep and sheer, but there's definitely some ledges along the way that make camping a little bit easier. Uh, we have a portal edge, which is like a portable cot that hangs from the side of the cliff that we can sleep on. Um, and then we have to haul our gear as we climb. So someone will climb up a pitch and lead it. And then they start hauling gear while uh, the second person starts cleaning it. And that was usually Sela. And what does cleaning a route mean? A cleaning a route is, so my dad, he would lead up, put up the rope. And um, then I was usually the second person to jug up, and by jugging, I'm um, just pulling myself up or up with something called ascenders, um, and they can go up the rope but not down. And um, when I clean, so I'm taking those pieces of gear that he's put in, and um, they're still clipped into the rope, so I have to take the unclip them from my rope and take them out. Uh, so you have to carry all your food and water up there, your sleeping bags, any extra clothes. Um, we had a little stove. And so, you know, your day really gets consumed by packing up, climbing, and then unpacking and camping and, uh, and eating. So it, it's kind of like vertical backpacking. And I want to know more about camping on a sheer rock face. Sayla, tell me more about what that was like. To be honest, I really like uh, sleeping up there. Um, I love the sunsets. It really, some of them reminded me of rainbows because they were all the colors of the rainbow. <laughs> um, some of them reminded me of cotton candy because they were the exact colors of, of like the blue and the pink of cotton candy. And I think because the ledges, you know, they're not fifty, they're not a hundred feet long. You know, they're pretty small, um, and so you're always really close to people. And, I think that can really help bond your relationship. It is kind of neat because you cook together and do all these things together. So you really become a tight-knit group, you know, because you do have to kind of work together with things. Everything's always clipped in when you're up there, you know, like you think about, um, you know, everything, your sleeping bag, 
your your stove is clipped into the wall like your water bottles have little hooks on them so you can clip them into the wall um everything's clipped in when you're camping up there um and that's including yourself you're completely tied in the whole time yeah Yeah. and and that includes even when we're sleeping because a really common question we get is well what happens if you roll in the middle of the night and roll out of bed and so you're still tied in the entire time, even that's, when you're sleeping. That's the one thing I don't like about sleeping on a portal edge. Um, I'm wiggly when I sleep. Um, <laughs> so not and, enough rolling over on the side of the mountain. And so when I wake up in the night or in the morning, I'll usually be wrapped up in rope. <laughs> 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 now, I want to talk about getting to the top in a minute, but Zayla, are there any moments on the wall that you're really proud of? I think when we got past um, the cane swing and the boot flake, um, I think that was really special for me because um, now I knew that, you know, we're, it's going to be harder to get down than it is up now. Mm, is and, that the halfway um, point? Yeah. Was there ever a moment when you didn't think you'd make it to the top? Well, I don't actually no, not really. I think that mostly it was just it wasn't a hundred and one hundred percent chance that we would get to the top. So I was worried that something would happen. You know, maybe someone's gonna fall and get hurt, or um, maybe we drop something. Um, just that can worry me a lot. Um, the thought that we might not get to the top. Our our big motto all throughout the climb was how do you eat an elephant? Small bites. (laughs) And we talked about that a lot, especially because at the beginning we were behind a a slower group. And so it caused us to change our game plan a little bit because we we were planning on four days. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, I think we're going to have to take five days if we do this. So do we have enough food, enough water, and do we have enough grit and perseverance to do five days? Because it's a lot of work being up there. And um, so we just try to take every day one step at a time, one pitch at a time. Um, and even just individual moves, you know, just focusing on the little things uh, to get to the top of a big goal. Um, and so I know early on, I think we had more doubts because it's a lot harder at the bottom because you have a lot of weight that you're hauling up the, the wall, a lot of water and a lot of food. And, and, you know, water weighs a lot. We probably started out with about... I think we had about 12 gallons of water at the start. So it's about 100 pounds. And so that's a lot of weight to carry. So I think we had some doubts early on. um, But we really just tried to have a good positive attitude about it and take it one step at a time. And as the days went on, like Sayla said, once we got past the boot flake and the king swing, we're like, okay, like, I think we're we're doing pretty good here. Let's just keep making sure that we're doing things right and we don't make a mistake or have, have an accident happen or keep an eye on the weather that there's not a big storm coming in. And obviously climbing is so much a part of both who you are and who, and your family's life, but it's also full of risks that you've both alluded to. Were there parts of the climb that made you nervous as a father? I'm a climbing guide and I've been climbing and instructing and teaching climbing for a long time. So I'm always really aware of the risk of what we do. I don't know that there was any particular moment where I was particularly worried Sayla really showed herself to be really adept at the skills that she needed. And I know for myself when I was leading or my friend Mark when he was leading and we were putting up the rope, 
uh, we're always very conscious of the dangers, the risks, and, and that could be things like sharp rock. You don't want your rope to get abraded over sharp rock. So we really were keeping an eye on things like that. We were really just keeping an eye on her as well as ourselves, that we were having good backups, that we are doing things right. Um, and that's just something that I think has happened for me, like become a real habit after a long time of climbing and a long time of guiding and teaching climbing. So th there was never a moment where I, I think I felt like she was at any particular risk. It was just kind of more overall, just a general mindset that we had. Now, Sela, I want you to tell me about that moment when you made it to the very top of this 3,000 foot climb. What were you feeling? Pizza, ice cream, river. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was really emotional. I was just thinking about, did I just do this? Um, it was kind of amazing. Amazing for me that I had actually done it. I never, I never thought that day would come. <laughs> Mike, you've climbed El Cap a few times before. Did climbing it with your daughter make you see it any differently? I really, I tried to keep my emotions in check. I was like, oh, I just don't want to, I don't want to consider it guaranteed that we're going to get to the top until we're actually at the top. And when that finally happened, and I saw her like crying happy tears, which she said she had never had a happy cry before, um, that was pretty special. And it really made me, you know, just think back to all these things in my life that had brought me to this point of, you know, meeting my wife and having kids and dreaming about climbing El Cap someday with my kids and to have it come to fruition was pretty powerful. And, and I don't even know that it's really set in yet. And Sayla, now that it's been a couple of weeks, do you feel like you processed it yet? No, I think for the most part I have, but I don't think I'll ever really be able to fully process it. I, I think sometimes something so big like this it's going to take a long time to really understand. And it's almost, I feel like we need to go climb something else and maybe even fail on something else. And then, and then maybe we'll realize how special it was. I think we're all just kind of coming to terms with climbing El Cap. And that's how I felt with every time I've climbed El Cap. It's always such a big experience and it's so hard to wrap your head around. Um, and so, yeah, I still, I think I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> thank you both for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. Sayla Schneider climbed El Capitan with her father, Mike. Sayla is 10 and the youngest person known to have climbed El Capitan. The Schneiders live in Glenwood Springs. Now, a man who's had a remarkable career in radio and in music. Will Carlin is originally from New York City, where he witnessed the rise of punk rock. He caught shows at CBGB, the, quote, undisputed birthplace of punk. He became friends with Joey Ramone, the late Ramone's frontman. Carlin DJed at famous nightclubs like Studio 54 and Electric Circus. Then he went to WLIR in Long Island, which was surfing the new wave. Now, Will Carlin, who goes by Willoughby, is the new program director at CPR's new music station, formerly known as Open Air. Today it relaunches with a new name, Indy 1023. And Will, welcome to the show. Wow. What, what a glowing intro. Thank you very much. Well, I'm honored to be here. You've had an impressive trajectory in your radio career, and it, it really does seem like you grew up in the right place at the right time, New York City in the 1970s. You saw some young bands now considered 
legendary. The Ramones, Talking mm-hmm. Heads, and Blondie, to name a few. Uh, rumor has it, though, that you weren't old enough to attend some no, of these shows. No, I used to sneak into Max's Kansas City and uh, CBGB's when I was, I don't even want to say how old I was. I looked older at the time. I had mm. long hair and a beard and a mustache, and I could pass for Jesus Christ. So okay. everybody <laughs> let me in wherever I wanted to go. They and didn't card you? No. Mm. They didn't card anybody back then in New York. Uh, everybody drank. <laughs> As I mentioned, you were a nightclub DJ around this time, uh, working at clubs like Studio 54. The clientele there was legendary. What, what do you remember about your experiences? Uh, well, actually, uh, one of the best clubs that I worked at was called Danceteria. And my <laughs> boss, uh, he, he's now passed, but his name is Mark Kamens. He hired me to spin on one of the three floors of Danceteria. It was an amazing nightclub. Everybody who's anybody in the music business used to hang out there. And Mark, at the time, was dating a young lady by the name of Madonna. And he wound up producing her very first demo that got her signed to Sire Records. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then they wound up dating a lot longer until her next producer came along. His name was Jelly Bean. They broke up. Jelly Bean started dating Madonna, and he hired me to work in another club, the uh, the Electric Circus. Did you spin for Madonna? Do you think she was dancing? Oh, some... she was dancing on every dance floor, but she was definitely dancing on the floor that I was DJing at. Okay, that's very cool. Uh, well, since then, you've managed radio stations all over the country and crossed paths with many other superstars in the music industry, including... Joining me right now, frontman for YouTube, Bono. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to talk to us today. Willoughby, you are very, very, very visible. <laughs> we, can, we can see you. We have those drones overhead. We've been following you into the station. We know what you're if, if anybody would know about that, you would. You know, we have some history. I don't know if you remember. I worked for a radio station in New York that was, I think, one of the first to play you two in the U.S., uh, WLIR. You remember us. I most certainly do. I, can, I, I Unfortunately, I have what they refer to as Irish Alzheimer's. <laughs> Is we remember everything. I remember the Malibu. How about that? Yeah, that's the first place I saw you play, actually, it was the Malibu. <laughs> Did you think when you saw you two back in the day, like, these guys are going to be huge? Uh, I had a feeling. I was like, oh, my God. I remember seeing you two the very first time they played in the U.S., in, in Long Island, New York, in a little club that only held, well, 3,000 people, but only 300 showed up. Oh. And... Bono was painting on his tartan pants at the time. They were so (laughs) tight. tight. (laughs) Yeah, you could tell what religion he was. So it was, uh, I think it was groundbreaking, really. And I said, there's something going on here. And of course, the rest is history. They turned out to be uh, one of the few bands that can fill football stadiums. Right, including Mile High. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay, Will Carlin, you joined CPR earlier this year as program director for our new music service. And today it relaunches as Indie 1023. What's changing? Well, right there. The name is the name, changing. Okay. <laughs> the branding is changing. The, um, the, the, the delivery, the personality of the station, um, the presentation, the uh, 
the rotation of the music. Some of the music is changing, but there's going to be a lot of familiar artists like Radiohead and Arcade Fire and Beck and St. Vincent, Courtney Barnett and Lizzo, Mitski, Alabama Shake. So a lot of the names uh, that a lot of people are familiar with, and we will be playing a bit more familiar music more often. So that's a big change well, as well. I'm glad you mentioned Lizzo. I'm a little obsessed with her at the moment. Me too. Uh, why the rebranding? Just in brief. Well, you know, we found that the the name Open Air just wasn't resonating with enough people, and we're trying to reach a wider audience and a bit of a younger audience. So uh, with some research, we found that the word independent kept coming up, kept floating to the top, and therefore indie was like a, it was a shoe-in, really. It, it made sense. Colorado music, always an important part of Open Air's Absolutely. programming. Uh, will it be so with Indie 1023? Absolutely. Uh, we are actually going to uh, take the Colorado artists to the next level and put them into uh, more of a meaningful rotation. So their exposure will be uh, that of the next level of what they're used to. Plus, we're going to be doing a two-hour uh, local music show every Thursday night called The Local 303. We're going to feature all of the bands that people know from Colorado, plus we'll be having them in our studio, the performance space nice. uh, in the building, and, and uh, uh, offer lots of great new uh, live recordings. One of the local artists that you are elevating for July is Kiltro, uh, who will appear on Colorado Matters, actually, later this week. That's a catchy beat. Love that song. There are a number of specialty music shows on the new Indie 1023. We have about 30 seconds. Just give me a well, few Well, very highlights. excited. We're launching a local uh, indie Latin music show called Indie Especial. We've got a golden age of indie music show called Indie Gold, Passport Approved, which is music from all over the world. Oh, that's cool. And we're going to feature NPR music's All Songs Considered on the weekend. So... Exciting programming stuff. Yeah, we just up. we just went through it, adding a bunch of new programs at news. Yeah. Nice to hear it's happening now for you. Thanks for being with us, Will. Thanks for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure. Will Carlin, known as Willoughby on Air, is the program director for the new Indy 1023, a service of Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner.